You know by now that um, our theme for 2021 is a journey of faith. It's our 150th anniversary as a church. And during each season, we have been exploring various aspects of faith. And so for the fall of 2021, which we begin today, a new series, and I've entitled it, What Do You Believe? And what we'll do is, in this series, over the next two months, September and October, we're going to explore an array of topics, and it will take us through the end of October. If you'd like to uh, look and see what we're going to be discussing, you can go to my website, which is www.thesacramentaljourney.org, and you'll find information there on that website, resources, but you'll also find on the 2021 tab, the schedule of topics that we'll be addressing over these next two months. And next Sunday, we will look at the topic of what do you believe about truth? And then what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about government? What do you believe about prejudice? What do you believe about anthropology? What do you believe about qualifications for ministry in a local church? What do you believe about the future? What do you believe about eternity? And I'm looking forward to sharing this journey with you. But here's where we're going to begin this morning. I wanna ask you this question. Does it even matter what you believe? Does it? Does it have any effect on you? I'm talking about what you believe. I'm talking about what you really believe. This weekend, <clears throat> Saturday, it'll be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Now, I know some of you are younger and you weren't here when it happened. But those of you that were alive on 9-11, do you remember where you were when you heard? I, I, can, I can replay that day. It's, it's almost like our lives before 9-11, our lives since 9-11. Well, the mastermind behind the events of that day was Osama bin Laden. Now, why did Osama bin Laden choose to engage in those attacks on the United States? Turns out, his belief system led him to plan those attacks. This last few weeks, the whole world has been focused on the events in Afghanistan. And we see these Taliban fighters in Kabul. What is it that motivates the Taliban? Why do they engage in these acts of violence? And why do they rule so ruthlessly? Well, it turns out it's their belief system that motivates them and is undergirding their actions. Back in 1636, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Great and General Court founded the first institution of higher learning in America. Eventually it would take on the name of one of its early leaders and would become known as Harvard. 
They adopted a motto at Harvard in the 17th century, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia. Truth for Christ and the church. And the purpose for establishing this institution of higher learning was to train the clergy to serve the growing population of that colony. Well, now here we are in 2021. Would you say much has changed at Harvard University? Maybe you saw this last week that the chaplains at Harvard elected a new head of chaplains, Greg Epstein. He's the newly elected head of chaplains, and he is a humanistic atheist. And these 30-some-odd chaplains serve the spiritual needs of Harvard's campus. And Greg has written a book entitled Good Without God. So I ask you again, does it even matter what any of us believes? Does it have any impact in our lives, our society, our families? Here's what I would say. Your belief system matters. In fact, I would contend it governs your behavior. You act out of what you believe. And so, this morning I want you to look at this text. I've entitled this opening message in this series, What Do You Believe About Belief? I just want to point you to a text in Acts 17. It's a familiar text. Paul and Silas are teaching, traveling, planting churches. And we find this story that Luke shares with us found on the 17th page of Acts, verse 10. Just look at a couple of verses with me this morning, if you would. Luke says, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of, noble, of more noble character. You know, the New Testament's written in Greek, that word of noble character. We get our English word eugenics from it. It means born well. And you can translate it, more noble. They were more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. As did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So Paul and Silas and Timothy have left Thessalonica. And they've traveled about 50 miles. And now they find themselves in what you and I today would call Northern Greece, Macedonia in those days. And they go to this synagogue there into this town known as Berea. And the Jewish people who lived in Berea and who were active in that synagogue, Luke says they were more noble. They, they received what Paul and Silas taught and they examined it. And what we see lived out in front of us in Berea is an example of a worldview. These Jews had a certain worldview. And it was through that worldview 
that they saw everything. It was like, it's like when you put your glasses on. It's the lens through which you see reality. And these Jews believed that God had created the world and that his story was being lived out in their people's lives. They were the people of God and God had revealed himself through his creation, through the story of Israel, and very clearly through the scriptures. And so their worldview caused them to listen to Paul and Silas and try to decide whether or not what they said was true or false. Does that make sense? So their worldview, their belief system, resulted in their decision about this new teaching they were hearing for the first time. Well, what is a worldview? If you look it up in the dictionary, Merriam-Webster says this, worldview is a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. It's also called Weltanschauung, which in German just means view of the world. It's a complete picture, if you will, of the world. Will Campbell, he's an apologist. He says this about a worldview. He says, a worldview is a system of beliefs that answer the philosophical questions of God, man, and the cosmos, which influences how a person relates to and interacts with the self, others, and the world around them. In other words, it's one of the most important things about a person. Well, if a worldview is so important, what is it? How do you arrive at it? Do you know, actually, it's an academic discipline. There are folks who give their academic lives to studying worldviews. And scholars have compiled a list of questions that you have to answer if you're going to actually present a comprehensive worldview. So let me just give those to you real quickly. For example, if you're going to create a worldview, then you've got to answer the question, what is prime reality? What, what is ultimate reality? You also have to answer the question, what is real about our world? When you see it, how do you recognize what is real? You have to answer the question, who are human beings? You also have to interpret the meaning of death because human beings have a lifespan. And how do you view death and beyond? You have to address the question, upon, what's to, upon what do we base all of our knowledge? How do you know anything? For certain. You have to answer the question, what is right and wrong? And finally, the question, what gives us true meaning? And so those who study and espouse worldviews grapple with those questions. And that conversation is an ancient one. But let me see if I can bring it up to date for you this morning. Let me just ask you some practical questions and you see how you would answer them. So for example, speaking of 9-11, the series of attacks on 9-11, do you believe they were evil? 
Whatever you've answered in your head, my question would be to you, why? Let me ask you another one. Should abortion be, for any reason, be allowed in America? Now, however you've answered that question in your head, I would ask you again, why? What do you base your answer on? Let me ask you another one. If you can advance personally through violations of standard accepted ethical guidelines, is it wrong to cheat your way to success? Once again, I would ask you, however you've answered that question, why? Let me put it a little differently. If your success in life is dependent upon injury or abuse of other human beings, is it necessarily wrong? Why? Who has decided what's good and evil? Who has decided what's right and what's wrong? You know, historically, human beings have grappled with these questions. They have tried to understand and explain our world, our universe, what ultimate reality is. When I was in seminary years ago, in my PhD studies, my PhD is actually in the history of Christianity, but my minor is in philosophy of religion. And in those days, Dr. John Newport was our provost at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And he was a philosopher. He had a PhD from Southern Seminary and he had a PhD from the University of Edinburgh. He had taught at Rice University, Baylor, Harvard, and other places. He wrote a book entitled Life's Ultimate Questions. And in that book, he chronicles that journey where since ancient times, philosophers, theologians, have somehow tried to answer the question, what, what is ultimate meaning? The Hindus, an ancient religion. The Hindu view is that the world is seen through the prism of evil and guilt. And the Hindus introduce what they call the law of karma, of retribution. Zoroaster, who was that great Persian philosopher of the seventh century BC, he said that you understand the real world once you come to grips with the origin of evil. Guatama, who became known as the Buddha, he said the only way to understand reality is to understand human suffering. And then the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, the Stoics said there has to be some kind of practical response to human suffering. That's the path to ultimate meaning, Epicureans. They countered that argument and said happiness and pleasure is the ultimate path to meaning. Socrates and his student Plato, they searched for the objective nature of truth and morality in what they perceived to be a world of relativism and cynicism. And they had much to say about life after death and the whole nature of evil. Aristotle responded and said, the understanding of reality is rooted in tragedy and evil and morality here on earth. St. Augustine, the Christian theologian, he was the Bishop of Hippo, he was also a philosopher. 
St. Augustine taught that the only way to grapple with true meaning is to understand the meaning of history and how the human story had unfolded throughout time. Anselm, another devoted Christian theologian, he said the answer is found in reason. And somehow reason and Christian faith need to be reconciled. Thomas Aquinas, he lived at a time in the world where he was watching Islam make far reaches in his world. And he said the answer must be with a response of Christian faith to what he saw as the peril of Islamic growth. Martin Luther, he's a great theologian, but he was also a philosopher. Martin Luther said the answer for ultimate reality is it found in guilt and sin and how you find a path to righteousness after you deal with your guilt and your sin. John Calvin, also a theologian, but a philosopher. John Calvin taught that Christianity and its role in culture and in politics is how you discover ultimate reality and meaning on this earth. Immanuel Kant, he, Immanuel Kant says there's this internal pressure, this, this desire for morality, this moral experience, and that's what really points to a greater reality. Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard said there's too much dependent upon reason. We need to factor in human experience to truly understand the dynamics of reality. Karl Marx, Marx said the answer for ultimate reality is to be exhibited through an economic system. Martin Heidegger, philosopher in the 20th century, he said the only way to understand life is to explain death. <clears throat> well, this, this philosophical journey is a it reflects the struggle, the, the challenge that human beings have faced for centuries. As human beings are trying to understand what is, what is life really all about? What is, what is ultimate reality? And each one of these approaches philosophically, theologically, is, it's been an attempt to provide a set of lenses so the people can take those lenses and interpret everything in their lives and answer the deepest questions that plague them. And so, we come to Acts 17, the Bereans had made a decision. Their understanding of ultimate reality was that God had created everything and he had chosen to purposefully place human beings on this planet and he now is revealing himself through the children of Abraham. And he has uniquely equipped them. He has given them the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom literature. And in their mind, that is the specific answer. And so when they heard this new teaching, they couldn't help themselves. They, they put their glasses on. They put their worldview lenses on. And they said, well, let's hear what Paul has to say. We will decide, anakrino is the Greek word. We're going to critically read this, examine this, and then we'll decide whether or not this fits with our worldview. If it does, we'll accept it. If not, we'll reject it. So, <clears throat> the worldview that you have is incredibly important. So here's what I wanna say to us this morning. And I really wanna begin a two month long conversation. Okay, are, are y'all still with me? Okay, so, <clears throat> I wanna start a two month conversation. And it's about a worldview. And we're gonna look at all these topics. But what we're really going to be doing is evaluating 
our worldview. So here's what I want to challenge you in as your pastor. I would say when it comes to worldview, we are personally responsible for developing our own worldview. Every single one of us. Now, that is a tall order, but here's what I want you to know. Whether you know it or not, you are already doing it, and some of you have already done it. And here's what's sad about my culture, my society, speaking as an American. Far too many Americans have arrived at a worldview unconsciously. They've not thought about it. They've not asked the hard questions. Too, far too many Americans have simply glided along, blown about here, there, and yonder by whatever happens to be reflected in society. It permeates their thinking. It guides their politics. It influences their everyday life. And for so many of them, they've never given it a thought. While I was off in July, I spent some time studying, praying about the future of our church, as I always do. And I'm really excited about 2022, what we have planned for you. But while I was off, I read several books. <clears throat> one of the books that I began to read through is this one. It's entitled, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's written by Carl Truman. Truman is a Christian historian, philosopher. He teaches at Grove City College. The tagline of this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. And he chronicles in this book, Scott, from a scholarly perspective, it's a, it's a heady read. You know, for a little old boy from Alabama, it doesn't have far enough pictures for me, you know, in this book. But here's basically what he contends. That our current society has simply glided along unconsciously. And now, the worldview that is embraced has penetrated every segment of society without any real thought. So, for example... He says, if someone in America today, in September, I'm adding that, of 2021, if someone were to say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He said, throughout the history of humanity, the response to that would be, that is nonsensical. The response today is, I'm sorry to hear that. His question is, how did we arrive at that position where a statement that would not make sense to our grandparents and to every other generation of human beings now seems to be completely accepted and almost embraced as a normal statement? He says, it's interesting because most Americans have not attended a philosophy class at Harvard they have not sat down and grappled with necessarily all of these worldviews and their systemic expressions. 
They simply have been guided along. Experiences, inclinations, opinions. And so somehow or another we've developed a value system. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? And so it, it really challenged my thinking. And so where I've landed is I want to have a two-month-long conversation with you. And it's going to be a little bit different. I hope that's okay. Because I do want to challenge you. <clears throat> because I'm looking at you high school students, you college students. Whether you know it or not, what's happening to you right now is you're developing a worldview. You're coming to grips with what you really believe. And you need to know how important that journey is because it will dictate almost everything about you. So I want to offer you a suggestion this morning, if I may. How do you do it? If a worldview is so important, how do you do it? How, how do you develop one? Well, again, this is, a, this is a, an academic field. This is, a, this is a scholarly exercise. And so there are a group of scholars who have said, you want to develop a worldview, then you need to do this right here. Sometimes it's seven, eight questions, but basically you can boil it down to just a few. So I want to do that for you this morning. Developing a worldview. See, Fred Smith has written a book entitled Developing a Worldview, Seeing Things God's Way. He's a PhD from Southwestern. He teaches at Liberty University. But he's written a, a very interesting treatment of this topic, and I'm grateful for his insight. And so basically, his suggestion is, if you want to develop a worldview, then you've got to answer four questions. So I want to encourage you to think about these four questions. And we're going to revisit these over the next two months. Let me give them to you. First of all, who am I? Or you could say, who are we? If you want to speak in the plural, which will be fine. Where am I? Or where are we? What went wrong? And what is the answer? Those are the four pivotal questions. Do you know every worldview that I know of believes something went wrong? Because it's obvious something is wrong in our world. True? I don't have to prove that to you. So, how do you answer those questions? Who are we? Where are we? What happened? And what's the answer? Well, there's some who say, well, we are evolved creatures. That's who we are. We're randomly placed in a natural world and universe. And the problem is ignorance. A lack of knowledge, which leads to so much suffering. So the answer is education and tolerance and patience. And through sheer human effort, we can accomplish the betterment of mankind. That's one view. In fact, if you want to take all the worldviews in existence today, here's what you can do. You can put every one of them <clears throat> into one of two categories, no matter what the worldview it is, no matter which one it is, because there are a number of them, and you can research this on your own. I would encourage you to do it. But you can take every one of them and put them in one of two categories. There's the materialistic view and the transcendent view. Those really are, the, at the end of the day, those are the two options and every other, every worldview fits into one of those categories. The materialistic view tries to answer the deepest questions of life from a merely human materialistic perspective. And so you would call it properly an atheistic approach. And by that, I'm not being pejorative with the term atheist. It's just simply descriptive. You put the, if you put the um, prefix ah, 
in front of a word, it just negates it. So all that means is, is that you have factored out God. Does that make sense? So the materialistic view, again, I'm not being pejorative, I'm being descriptive. It just says that the answer to the deepest questions of life are to be found in a merely materialistic, humanistic perspective. The other is the transcendent view. The transcendent view begins differently. It begins with God. Now, there are multiple expressions of that in different religious uh, worldviews, but the transcendent view begins with God. So with that said, let me just really quickly this morning offer you an example of how you do something like this. So for me personally, I'll go ahead and show my cards. Is that okay? I believe everything starts with God, so I have a transcendent worldview. That's where you would place my worldview. It'd be in that category. So when I ask the question, who are we? Well, we are human beings who have been created in God's image, which means we are purposeful and we have been designed by a loving creator. That's how I answer that question. Where are we? Well, we are human beings created in God's image and we are living in God's creation and we have the opportunity to have a purposeful meaning existence if we will engage in a relationship with him so that we might participate in his endeavors. Third, what is the problem? What went wrong? Sin. And sin has separated us from God and sin has unleashed evil on our world and sin has caused all kinds of maladies and brokenness in humanity. And what is the answer? I believe the answer is a radical one. It's not just the betterment of mankind. It's not just improved technology. It's not just advancing the cause of education. It's not just dealing with poverty. <clears throat> it's not just eliminating suffering. All those things are important. But the ultimate answer is God, in my opinion, and his story and offer of redemption that culminates in Jesus Christ, his son. So, all those questions that I posed at the beginning. Do I believe that Osama bin Laden's actions on 9-11 were evil? Yes. He inflicted harm upon other innocent human beings. In my worldview, that is evil, unacceptable, and should not be tolerated. Do I believe that advancing yourself by abusing other people is wrong? Yes. Because that other person has been created in the image of God just like you and deserves just as much right and opportunity to live their lives as you do. And as a fellow human being, you should be doing everything in your power to protect that person so that they might find their fullest measure of achievement and success, even if they violently disagree with you. My worldview is the lens through which I interpret all of reality and answer all of life's deepest questions. It is, it is engaging in a meaningful endeavor and I believe God's called us to fulfill our mission. Now it's complex, it's challenging, but I believe you're up to the task. And as I said, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to meander and wonder aimlessly through life. There's too much at stake. There are too many important decisions that need to be made. There are too many lives to be protected. And the last thing we need are a group of numb 
mindless Christians being blown about by every wind in our society. So I want to challenge you. We're not going to accomplish it in two months, but we are going to talk about it. And I want to encourage you. There are some great people who've grappled with this and arrived at a worldview that I've shared with you already. Probably my favorite scientist alive today is Francis Collins. He's a medical doctor. He's a scientist. He's brilliant. He discovered the gene that causes cystic fibrosis. He led a group of of scholars and scientists to map the human genome. He's the head of the National Institutes of Health. He is unquestionably one of the most reputable scientists on planet Earth. He found himself as a young doctor engaged in caring for patients and he was an atheist. And he said, He was in the midst of caring for one particular patient. He said this particular lady reminded him of his grandmother. And he said, there was a single pivotal moment where I sat on the bed of that elderly woman. He says she was afflicted with a particularly advanced case of cardiac disease, which caused her to be stricken with really awful chest pain on a regular basis, and our medicines were not working. He said, during those episodes, she would pray with the greatest earnestness I've ever seen. And then she would come through it and would be at peace. He said, and there I was. And she shared her faith with me day after day. I was uncomfortable, he said. He says, but one day after sharing, she made me really uncomfortable. He said, because she turned to me and she said, doctor, I've shared my faith with you and you seem to be somebody who cares for me. What do you believe? What do you believe, doctor? Here's what Francis Collins says. He says, I don't think anybody in an honest, open way had ever asked me that question. He said, and I realized I was utterly lacking in response. I stammered, well, I I don't think I really know. And the surprise in her eyes cut through me. And he said, and then I realized, with all my education and all of my standing and all of my expertise, he said, I had had neglected the most important question that any of us ever asks. Is there a God and does that God care about me? And here's what happened to Francis Collins. He said, I decided to seek some help. And he said, there was a Methodist preacher that lived in his neighborhood. Now, come on, y'all. Methodists can do something right every once in a while. Y'all know that. (laughs) Just kidding, for those of you who don't know me. He said, and this Methodist pastor began to challenge me, just personally. What do you believe, Francis? And Francis Collins said, I'll remember the day came when I finally decided I believe there's a God, and I believe he cares about Francis Collins, and I gave my life to him. And he has spent the rest of his career living his life as a Christian scientist in one of the most important seats in our nation. 
He's founded BioLagos. I would encourage you to look at that website. It's amazing the amount of resources there that have been created and designed by this brilliant mind. But guess what? His worldview has changed everything about him. That's what worldviews do. So this morning, I want to invite you to a conversation. Like I said, a little different kind of sermon, true? But I think y'all are up to it, don't you? So for the next two months, we're going to talk like this. We're going to explore these topics. And we're going to ask ourselves some hard questions. And we're going to see how good we are at crafting a worldview. And then see how it influences us and how we live every day. So I'm excited about the journey ahead. Let's pray together. Well, Father, today we, <clears throat> we always, Lord, are humbled when we come into your presence, recognizing that you are our God and we believe you care about us. And today, Lord, we, we bow in your presence knowing also there's so many things going on in our world. There is so much fracture and brokenness and our hearts are burdened for those that are suffering right now in our community, those who have COVID, those who've had deaths in their families, the medical workers who are frazzled and pushed beyond limits, our school officials who are trying to make wise decisions, parents who are trying to sort all this out, and then we lift our gaze. We see people affected by a hurricane again. And Lord, we, we watch with horror as we see the news out of places like Afghanistan. And so we're burdened for our world. And we confess that to you. And we ask you, Lord, to be our God. We know that none of it escapes your attention. But Lord, I'm also burdened for us. And I pray that you will guide us to think more deeply, to invest ourselves more fully, to somehow soften that quick trigger and seek you and your wisdom and come to deeper, richer understanding of why we believe what we believe and, and whether or not our belief system needs to be altered and guided more powerfully and effectively by truth, by your spirit, by your word, by the lordship of Jesus. So Lord, I just wanna offer my church to you over the course of these next couple of months that you'll guide us in these conversations. And I pray they will bear fruit in your kingdom, in our lives, in our community as well. And that's our prayer today in the name of Jesus, amen.